If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we're welcoming Ed Caesar to the podcast. Ed has written an extraordinary new book called The Moth and the Mountain, a true story of love, war and Everest. It's the tale of a remarkable man called Maurice Wilson and his wild attempt in the 1930s to fly to and then scale Mount Everest. Speaking to Ed was our content director, Dave Musgrove. Ed, can you just drop us into the story? Just uh, tell us who Maurice Wilson was, where he was born and uh, into what sort of circumstances. Absolutely. So Maurice Wilson was born in 1898 in Bradford. He was the son of a mill owner. And I think had it not been for the First World War, he would have had an unremarkable life uh, and he wouldn't have troubled historians or biographers in any way. Um, But as for a lot of other young men who went through what he went through in the First World War, the conflict changed everything for him. And after the war, he really struggled to settle down, to find happiness. He traveled the world. He burnt through marriages. And eventually, in 1932, he hit upon this extraordinary idea uh, that was going to redeem his life. It was going to save him in some way. He was going to fly a plane to Everest, try and crash land on one of the lower slopes, and then walk, climb the rest of the way to the summit of the mountain, thus becoming the first person to climb Mount Everest. Which is uh, a, a pretty pretty uh, understandable uh, thing to want to do, isn't it? So uh, so so fair enough. Okay, so let's so take it back. So Bradford, he's born. Bradford is a uh, an industrial city uh, in in the north of England, uh, famous at that time for textile production. So what were his what were his sort of life options at at, uh, at that point uh, pre war? What was he what would he have been going into if uh, if war hadn't uh, hadn't come to pass? Yeah. So his his dad um, his dad Mark Wilson was someone who'd risen up through the class system, I guess. He was, he started out as a factory boy uh, in in Bradford and, and he'd ended up owning his own mill and had quite a successful business. Uh, Morris was one of four boys and they all would have gone into textile production of some kind. Bradford was this incredibly exciting city at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, you know, two football teams in the first division, uh, symphony orchestra, um, you know, tons of money pouring in, capital of the world's world trade, uh, and this very sophisticated cosmopolitan place, you know, a big German-Jewish immigrant population. Um, so Bradford would have felt a really exciting place to be pre-war. And, you know, his life was probably quite well mapped out for him. You know, he, he would have gone into the business, hopefully would have thrived. They lived in reasonably comfortable circumstances in a nice part of Bradford. And that was what his life was going to look like. But of course, the First World War um, uh, uh, looms into view. Um, so you mentioned in your opening comments that uh, that sort of um, changed his life and uh, and uh, and 
probably had a pretty big impact on him. So can you very quickly um, detail what happened to him in in that uh, first um, global conflict? Yeah, so he was uh, he was 18 when he joined up, joined up just after his 18th birthday, and it took him a while to see action on the front line. Uh, he got to the continent just in time for the end of the Battle of Passchendaele, and then the big day on which everything changed for him was the day on which he won his military cross for bravery, which was on the 25th of April in 1918 during the German Spring Offensive, and he held his post uh, while the Germans advanced and overran his battalion. And more than half his battalion died on that day, and he survived. And uh, his military cross citation cites his incredible valour in holding his post when all around him um, had been taken out by the German fire. And it was largely owing to his pluck that the German attack was held up. So he eventually, two months after that incident, was shot through the back and through the arm by a German machine gunner near Ypres, and he was invalided home. So his service was really only about nine months um, in the field, but it would have a a huge effect on him, a lasting effect. So when he came back to, he came back to Bradford uh, after after that. So uh, was he suffering from uh, shock syndrome or anything like that? Can we understand that? Yeah, it would be hard to pin down exactly what was going on with him psychologically at that time. It was much easier to discern what was happening. His his brother, Victor, definitely did have PTSD, extremely uh, bad PTSD. He shook, he had nightmares. Um, he was considered 80% disabled by the war office on account of his injuries. Morris Wilson, it was harder to discern what was going on with him. He just felt very uncomfortable in post-war Britain. He felt that he didn't fit in. And he eventually, after trying a few things in business, left for New Zealand and the start of a peripatetic period in his life in which he travelled and, and burned through marriages and so on. So that, that jumps on to my next question, was uh, how did he end up divorced on the other side of the world in uh, in 1924? <laughs> so he was... He was married in 1923 to a to a local girl, Beatrice, and um, he left her behind in in Bradford while he went to try and make his way in New Zealand on the understanding that she would come and uh, be reunited with him once he'd set himself up. And by the time Beatrice made it to New Zealand, she found that he was in a relationship with another woman with whom uh, whom he eventually married, Mary Garden, and she was a very successful businesswoman and had her own clothing store in in New Zealand, which uh, Wilson became part of. Um, you know, that marriage was, I think, probably a period of material happiness for Wilson, but obviously he wasn't happy in every way because it crumbled uh, a few years after that. And then he spends a few years, but basically globetrotting, travelling around the world um, and and doing all sorts of uh, interesting things, coming back to to England uh, occasionally, but uh, but seeing seeing the world. Um, how's how was he funding that? I think he'd made a lot of money through the clothes business in New Zealand, um, which he took with him. Uh, he he did seem to be able to access funds, um, and one of the things that I could never quite nail down in this story was how much you know he'd been given by his his parents, um, you know, his father had been reasonably successful and had died quite young. Um, But I think he made most of it himself in New Zealand. He talks about having been successful in business, but it was a period of real unhappiness for him. He talks about 
this topsy-turvy psychological feeling that he had as he traveled through America and Canada. Eventually, he went to Southern Africa, coming back on a ship from Mozambique. Um, so he, you know, he did do a lot of traveling. He saw the world, but he was profoundly unhappy and he couldn't settle anywhere. And I mean, was, you, you paint a really vivid picture of his travels around the world in the book, and it's uh, it's almost it's quite it's it's an interesting period of of uh, of, of time to be travelling around in the world. It, you know, it's the sort of the 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 last empire emper, embers of the British Empire, I guess, in a way, and the start of the Commonwealth. And it feels like he was kind of you know he was he, in many ways he was having quite a nice time in this uh, in this uh, aftermath of ember. But as you said, perhaps struggling uh, well, mentally. I, yeah. The- the thing that really strikes me about this period in his life is the the freedom. You know, he, he could seemingly go anywhere. Um, you know, what's wonderful is is when you were digging into the, when I was digging into the archives and you'd see, you know, him on these ships' manifests, and you know, one little entry in a ship's manifest was you know accounted for three months of his life. You know, he was going to Southern Africa and then coming back this way and. You know, the huge swathes of time go by when he's just traveling and and seeing the world in this quite leisurely way. Um, I find it all quite freeing to think about, um, particularly given our current, (laughs) you know, privations and, you know, with the virus and everything that we can't go anywhere. You know, he could literally go anywhere he wanted seemingly. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it struck me that it's not something you think about so much in the interwar period of a, a period of a, like a golden age of travel or anything like that. I'm sure it wasn't um, for for a lot of people, but for for someone like him with money and a ready smile, it seems like he was kind of able to to go anywhere and 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 pretty much do anything. Yeah, and it's and it's wonderful this idea also that it was a golden age of civil aviation. So you know, the, all these planes suddenly started being manufactured, which you know, relatively ordinary people could afford. Um, it wasn't very difficult to learn how to fly a plane. You know, there were there were hundreds of civil aviators in Britain. And I love that idea as well of just being able to pop over to France for the day or, you know, flying a plane from, you know, London to Manchester or something just because you felt like it. You know, there, there was this this feeling of freedom and certainly wasn't a feeling of form filling and, and having to have the right documents everywhere you went. Yeah. So when when does uh, Wilson get bitten with the the aviation bug? So he, he was in Germany. He became interested in the idea of fasting. Um, he used to go on these long fasts in order to cleanse himself spiritually, an idea that was in vogue in London at the time. And he was in the Black Forest in Germany recovering from one of these fasts. And he came across a newspaper clipping which referred to the 1924 Everest expedition, the British expedition to Everest, on which George Mallory and Andy Irvin, uh, Sandy Irvin died. And he got an idea that he was going to go and climb Everest. And so most of those expeditions went to India by ship. And then they would have taken trains to Darjeeling in northern India, and then they would trek to the foot of the mountain. But Wilson also saw in the newspapers that there was an uh, expedition by air to Everest, the Houston Mount Everest expedition that was going uh, later that year, and he was he was really bitten by this idea that you could fly, you could actually fly to the mountain, and it was it was much more flamboyant. It fitted his personality much better. I think it was much quicker. It didn't take three months; it would take two weeks to fly in stages from London to Everest. So he decided he was going to fly to the mountain. 
And all he had to do then was to learn how to fly. So he bought a plane and took lessons. So hang on, there's a, there's a few things that we need to unpack here. So firstly, the uh, uh, the, the fasting business is uh, is really interesting because yes. that seems to be quite a, a sort of an important part of of uh, his his life and character at this point and in the in the run up to uh, to the Everest um, attempt. Um, and fasting yes. is kind of you know you mentioned that it was uh, on vogue then. I mean it's kind of uh, something that happens now a lot as well. There's a lot of people who advocate fasting as uh, part of um, a good diet practice at the moment. So it's kind of with us at the moment as well. Various sort of short-term fasting things um so it feels quite contemporary it, so it was a it was a big thing in the in the 20s and 30s was it there was a there was a moment in which it um it's very difficult to say exactly where wilson's interest in this comes from because he certainly was he was a christian who was influenced by uh the oxford group which was this uh, which formed the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they were a group of kind of influential, muscular uh, Christians who who believed in total submission to God's will. And but he was also very interested in Mahatma Gandhi. So he he read widely about Mahatma Gandhi, and Mahatma Gandhi was famous for his fasts. And Gandhi came to the UK in 1931, um, and it's not clear whether Wilson saw him, but he certainly read a lot about him. So. Wilson was interested in a kind of thinly understood Eastern mysticism as well as his uh, Christian beliefs. And, that, and in the, within the Christian beliefs, he, he was also interested in that verse in the, in the Gospel of St. John, you know, um, about becoming as, as water. And, you know, he was, he was, he fasted, I think, for a number of reasons, but what, what, wherever his beliefs came from, he truly believed that it replenished him, both physically and spiritually, every time he went on one of these long fasts. And in fact, you know, this was something that he believed in amongst all these other interesting things that he was um, enthralled to, horse racing, nightclubs, <laughs> you know, uh, women. You know, he was, he was nothing if not a bundle of contradictions. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely that comes across uh, in, in in the book. A, a man of uh, a, a very interesting character. So it sounds like if he was having to recover from a fast in Germany, he's he's taking it to an extreme. He's not. It's not just a, a, a you know an eight hour fast. No, it's weeks at a time. Yeah. he would fast for just taking only water. He wrote to uh, he wrote to a friend that uh, as he rolled over in bed after one of these fasts, he was worried that his hip bones were going to tear the sheets. It's a really vivid image. Um, you know, he really what you know, he would get himself, you know, painfully thin during these fasts, and then he would eat a lot and walk in the hills and regain his strength. And he, you know, he felt that that was important to him. Interestingly, I spoke to someone who suffered very badly from PTSD after Iraq, and um, he read this book and said to me, it feels like a classic post-traumatic reaction. You, you, actually want to get outside of your body, you feel limited by your body. And um, and this person I was talking to, you know, had felt almost, you know, identical feelings to what Wilson had felt. And I, I do wonder, given what else we know about his state of mind, whether this is a, this is a, some kind of reaction to his his uh, his trauma. He's done all this fasting, and then he he comes up with this. Um, it's not an everyday ambition, is it, to fly to Everest and, it's and not, it's walk wild. up it? Um, so, I mean, I guess that again is uh, is indicative of his character and in his um, in his frame of mind. Is 
he's, he's, he's extreme. He does things. Um, there's no short measures here, are there? No short measures and no turning back. Uh, the thing, his singular quality, I think, is his determination. Once he's set his mind on something, it's it's almost impossible to turn him back. And, and in fact, many people did try to turn him back, his friends, uh, the civil servants in London and in India who got wind of his plan from the newspapers and were absolutely determined that he not try to do what they call the suicidal attempt. They were worried that they, he was going to wreck Anglo-Nepali diplomatic relations by crashing in Nepal. Um, they were worried about any number of things with this man. And they tried at every turn before he left in his plane, while he was on the flight, and eventually when he landed to stop him from flying to Everest. Uh, and eventually they were at least you know, successful in stopping him flying, but they couldn't stop him getting there. Okay, so he goes back to to England and he procures this plane and it's a, a DH-60 Gypsy Moth, right? That's right. Right. So this is, what, what sort of, can you describe this plane? What, what was it like? Yeah, it's a hundred horsepower, two cockpit biplane made by uh, de Havilland. It's an absolutely beautiful plane. Um, and it's got a sort of bulbous nose that you have to peer left and right to see over the uh, top of when you're taking off. Uh, you fly it from the back cockpit. So he'd have had his equipment, his climbing equipment and luggage and extra fuel tanks stuffed in the front. Um, I mean, it really is the spirit of that, uh, you know, kind of Biggles-like adventure. He was he was going to be flying in the open air with his mask on and his flying jacket uh, and, and navigating by compass. And in the in the course of the research for the book, did you have any opportunity to fly in anything like this? I did. Yeah, I flew. Um, I flew in a moth. Um, it was a magnificent experience, and and really helped me. I think describe those sections of the book. Um, you know, you're you're going up there in this thing that's you know nine hundred pounds unladen. It's made out of linen and uh, Irish spruce and uh, bits of steel it really does you know it feels featherweight that it's got this lawnmower engine in the front that um, doesn't feel like it's going to get you anywhere you ascend extremely slowly because there's so little power you fly very low you can see the world in detail beneath you it's just an extraordinary um it's an extraordinary machine very beautiful so noisy i mean the sound of it and the feeling of it stays in your body for the rest of the day so I can only imagine what it felt like to fly it day after day as Wilson did. You know, he must have felt like his whole body was humming the entire time. So so, so he's got this plane, this beautiful plane, this freeing device. Uh, he can't fly it. No. Um, I mean, which is, again, uh, indicative of his character. So, how, so how, he, he takes flying lessons. He learns to fly. He takes flying lessons. He takes flying lessons at Stag Lane Aerodrome in North London. Um, and after about 19 hours of tuition, he's ready to fly solo. Um, he then, you know, gets fit and and does his training such as it is for the Everest part of his adventure. He's never climbed anything. I mean, he's he's really, he's not a climber. He doesn't know how to use an ice axe, cut ice steps. He doesn't know how to use crampons. He's not got any experience. But what he does do is get extremely fit. And he walks very long distances. He hikes around the Lake District in Snowdonia. This is not adequate preparation for trying to climb Everest, but uh, Wilson felt it was enough. 
And in terms of the equipment that he uh, he chooses to for the expedition, he, he goes to Fortnum and Masons. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that makes him sound slightly more amateurish than he actually is, because Fortnum and Mason had equipped uh, the official British expeditions of the 1920s and in 1933 as well. It was considered uh, a place where you would go and get all that stuff. But yeah, he he goes to Fortnum's. Um, he does buy the most up to date, you know, windproof clothing and the best tent. You know, if nothing else, he was an intelligent shopper. He has oxygen with him. You know, he he doesn't skimp on the um, on the gear. But um, again, it's you know ultimately it was going to be one man climbing alone on a mountain, and you need to know how to do that. Right. So he's got the plane. He's learned how to fly. He's he's got his his gear and he's he's done some training uh, and then he's fit and it, so he's ready to go. Um, how? I mean, this must have all cost quite a lot of money. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose that goes back to the question I asked you before. How's he? How's he paying for this? Has he got someone to sponsor him, or is it? No, this is just he, independent wealth. He, yeah, his. Uh, I think you know he. By the time he gets in the plane, he has spent a huge amount of his money. I mean, I think you know it does feel like this is a big gamble, not just in terms of his physical safety, but in terms of his you know economic outlook, if you want to call it that. He was. Uh, uh, you know, he, he thought that if he could climb Everest, he'd be made for life. Um, he talks about selling publicity to the newspapers. He never gets an exclusive deal with any of the newspapers. Um, although the Express, which was at that point the, the biggest newspaper in the world, you know, takes a huge interest in his um, adventure. And, and you know, he is nothing if not good copy. Like, so all of the newspapers um, cover his him leaving. They cover it when he seems to get lost um, during part of the flight, they cover him when he lands in Karachi. So, and and eventually they they cover his escape to Everest. If I'm not getting too far ahead of myself, but the, but the you know the press were really interested in him, and and I think you know he was hoping to parlay that into some kind of payday once the adventure was finished. So that was the plan. He was going to write a book or something like that, and yeah. was going to and was going to um, profit yeah. from that. And that was that was going to make sense, um, which seems reasonable. But so, but before he goes, presumably everyone's saying to him, "Look, this is madness. You have no idea what you're doing. This is far too dangerous. Don't go." That is what most people say. There, there's at least one person who doesn't say it, which is the woman that he was in love with, who was also married to one of his great friends, and with whom he was involved uh, in. I guess would be politely called a sort of chased menage a trois in uh in a made of ale apartment you know enid evans was um his soulmate and they used to go on shopping trips to fortnum and masons together to get his equipment um she believed that he could do it and in fact his his adventure becomes a sort of long love letter to her uh you know he writes actual love letters to her uh, every step of the journey you know, the diary that he takes with him resembles uh, a long and very, you know, intimate uh, letter to her. And he is totally um, driven by the fact that, you know, there's this small group of people who are wishing him well and, and urging him on when the whole world has told him that he can't do it. Let, let's get to let's get to the flight. So uh, when does he when does he finally uh, take off what when's when's the uh, actual expedition commence so the 21st of may 1933 flies from stag lane and because you can only fly even with extra fuel tanks in the front you could only fly so far in a day in 
the the moth without refueling. So he's got to plot his stages. So the so the journey goes, uh, and I hope I don't forget any of it now. But the the journey goes from London to Freiburg in Germany, uh, goes to the south of France, Marseille. He then follows the Côte d'Azur and the Italian Riviera before jumping across the sea to Pisa, Rome, Naples, Sicily, um, across to North Africa, uh, Tunis. Uh, he gets all, he travels all along the North African coast uh, as far as Cairo, uh, where he's expecting a uh, a permit for to fly over Persia and through Persia to be waiting for him. And there is none, uh, which is a what he calls a stick up by the civil authorities um, who've, who he thinks have lost it on purpose. And then he flies through the Middle East. He flies uh, to Iraq, uh, to Baghdad. He, because he's now had to change direction because he can't go through uh, modern-day Iran, he finds an old school atlas and tears out a page from that to guide him on his way. Um, down through the Trucial states, so... Um, down through Basra and Bahrain. Um, he's t- almost turned back here. A British official, um, Gordon Locke, uh, is told, t- tells him in no uncertain terms, you are not permitted to fly this way. And you either have to fly through Persia, in which case you'll get arrested, or you have to fly back home through Iraq. And Wilson gets to the point where he signs a document saying he's going to do that in return for refueling. And as soon as he's in the air, instead of turning left to Iraq and home, he flies right to India, the subcontinent, and Everest. And there's nothing that this uh, poor chap on the ground can do about it. So he eventually he eventually makes it Gwadar, Karachi, and finally uh, to Purnir in, in northern India, which was going to be the start of his flight over Nepal to Everest. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... That's at the moment when you realise how daunting Everest is. You're looking up and it becomes no longer the fabric of dreams and visions. It becomes this very real challenge of ice and snow and rock. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So th- this is incredible, isn't it? This this guy who's got barely any flying experience. I think on his on his first flight from uh, from England, he flies the wrong way up into the uh, into it. a headwind, and so you know <laughs> he's kind of like this is this is just you know this isn't going to happen. This is this is absolute madness. But he keeps going, gets him through all these scrapes, and and almost um, you know um, dies over the med or something like that, and yeah. and is constantly having to persuade people to give him more fuel and all these battles with uh, bureaucracy, uh, which are all uh, brilliantly told in the book. Um, uh, 
but I, but he just keeps going, and you, you know, when, page by page, and you book, you think, well, he's bound to turn back soon. Well, you don't think that because uh, if you know what happened to him, you know that he, he's going to get there sooner or later. But you think, this, I mean, the, the the commitment of this guy, the determination of him, is uh, is extraordinary. Many many other people would have turned back. I think possibly um, shortly after taking off from Stag Lane, um, but he he just keeps going, you know, and um, I think it comes back to this old idea of luckiness like he was extremely lucky to survive in the first world war he was ex- you know and he he has this idea i think that he's somehow blessed or 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 he doesn't you know the the things that normal people face don't don't face him um there's a strange idea about his own fate and he just carries on and every time he gets through one of these scripts i think it only reinforces his idea that he's going to make it that he's somehow being smiled upon and uh, there's one incredible moment where his engine cuts out on a very long uh, bit of the journey where he has to fly exactly straight um, in order to get to where he needs to go um, with the fuel that he's got in his tank. And the engine cuts out and he's just plummeting towards the ocean and he manages to get the plane to level out just before he touches the water and, and to ascend again. And it would be hard not to think that the Almighty was looking after you, <laughs> if that was your belief structure. Um, it would be hard not to think that someone up there was smiling on your adventure, and he definitely did think that. But but the authorities sadly weren't smiling on his adventure when he got to India, and uh, and basically he's not he's not allowed to to do what he wants to do when he's uh, when he's landed in India. So what's so what happens there? So there's a uh, there's so actually you should you should probably explain what the what do we know of the sort of the political situation in uh, in India and Nepal in in the 30s? Who's in charge and and who's yeah, who so, gives permission for people to do things? So so you know it's it's India's the jewel of the British empire. Um you know British officials in India were absolutely adamant that he was not going to fly from India to Everest. And so um, when he arrived in Pernir in northern India, Wilson's plane was impounded. And although there are a few little twists and turns on the way, that's essentially the end of his attempt to fly to, to Everest. So, so Wilson needs to think of, about um, what he's going to do. Like he, he, he entreats the Maharaja of Nepal to see if he will intercede on, on his behalf to no avail. And so he starts to think about alternative ways to get to the mountain. And all the British expeditions, the four previous British expeditions to Everest had gone to Darjeeling, the hilltop town in northeast India, where they'd collected porters and and goods and assembled. And then they'd started a long trek north through Sikkim and then through Tibet, uh, where they swung west towards the Himalayas. And they'd approached Everest from the northern side, but they'd done so with permission from the Tibetan authorities, from the Dalai Lama, and they've carried with them a passport, allowing them access into Tibet. Wilson didn't have any of that. He didn't have permission. Uh, the Brits were not likely to intercede on behalf of this uh, rogue adventurer who'd bested them several times already. And so Wilson has to think of a, a way to get in, in in disguise, effectively, and so he comes up with this plan. He's going to hire porters to help him who'd been on previous British expeditions. And he disguises himself as a Tibetan priest and steals out of his hotel room at midnight. And, and they walk at night to avoid detection 
all the way through Sikkim into Tibet. And eventually they walk during the day because there's hardly on a, hardly anyone around and, and uh, Wilson feels comfortable enough. And they make incredible time, you know, two weeks to the foot of the mountain, unburdened by all the trains of luggage and caviar and foie gras and Montebello 1915 champagne that the uh, previous Everest expeditions had taken with them. So Wilson is nothing if not fit and determined. And these guys that he's with are very fit and determined as well. And they make it in, in record time to the foot of the mountain where there's 29,000 feet of, um, <laughs> to the top of Everest. And, and again, you know, on the face of it, this is this is broadly ridiculous, isn't it? You know, dressing up as a Tibetan priest and uh, was he, he was wearing dark glasses or something? To he was wearing dark glasses yeah. and, a, and an umbrella. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. So you kind of think, well, how on earth did that happen? But again, his luck and his his determination gets him through. And and he's he's flogged his plane by now. He's sold his his plane to someone else. So. He got five hundred pounds for his plane, um, which is a fair whack of money. And so, you know, he's he's in funds again. And yeah, he's he somehow manages to get, you know, they come into contact with a policeman who somehow, who knows, does not see through this ridiculous disguise um, and lets them go on their way. Um, they get through um, all these, you know, all these meetings with uh, curious villagers who could have shot them to the authorities and it just doesn't happen, you know. Wilson assumes at every point that there's going to be a flurry of communique going around Darjeeling, like where is, you know, where is Wilson? But in fact, all the measures that he took to throw the authorities off his scent worked. Like he paid his hotel bill six months in advance. He, um, you know, he swore everyone to secrecy and, and apparently no one said anything for a really long time. So he's he's at Everest by the time anyone notices that he's gone. So he gets he goes to the the uh the um what's it called the wrong book uh the wrong book monastery. Yeah. Uh and from there it's you you're kind of almost there at the at the foothills of Everest, is that right? That's it. Yeah. So you're in the you're in the wrong book valley. Um so you have about 13,000 feet left to climb uh from the from the wrong book monastery and the way that you get to the summit of Everest from there is you you walk up the Rongbuk Valley. When it forks, you take a left up the East Rongbuk uh, Glacier and you eventually get to the foot of the North Col, which is um, the Brit- the old British Camp 3. Uh, and that was the route that, that Wilson decided to take. He'd read widely about Everest. He was, you know, he was a good reader. He, he read every book and every newspaper article he could get his hands on. So he knew which way to go. He just wasn't technically adept when when he was on his way, and presumably the 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 uh, the, the chaps who he'd paid to accompany him they they knew what they were doing and yeah they and where also they were knew. going yeah yeah so so on the uh, I mean on the first attempt he just went on his own so he didn't have them he didn't have those guys with him um, and that brought its own challenges. So he gets to the to the bottom mountain. He has a go himself, and and it doesn't pan out. So uh, he comes back down, uh, and he meets up with his yeah. with his uh, with his. How, what, what do we call them? They're porters, mountaineers, yeah, friends. Yeah, um, they were. Uh, I, I guess the you know the catchall would be Sherpa. They were you know they were bootiers. They're they're uh, Tibetans of Sikkimese heritage, uh, but yeah, his Sherpas, and they. You know, so he he tries once on his own, and it's 
fiendishly difficult to pick his way through the Seracs, these huge ice towers uh, in the East Rombok Glacier. Um, he is scrabbling around doing what he calls 50 times too much work. Um, and he has no one to carry any of his stuff, which all the other British mountaineers had uh, you know, in the period or to brew him his, you know, the, the, the water that he needs to drink. And he's, he's floundering around and half dead um, before he's even got close to Camp 3. And he, he realises on that first mission, I'm going to have to turn back here, otherwise I'm going to die on this glacier right now. So his, you know, he somehow makes it back to the, to the Rongbuk Monastery and he rests up and he gets better and he decides on, on, that what he needs to do is go back up the mountain but with the Sherpas who are going to help him. And by the time he gets to Camp 3, that's when he's going to strike out on his own. And that's what he does the second time around. They, they move much faster um, as a team. Uh, they get to Camp 3 where uh, the old the 1933 expedition had left a, an enormous food dump, um, including a lot of supplies from Fortnum and Mason. So he, he spends a happy afternoon gorging on, you know, delicacies uh, bought on Piccadilly and, you know, chocolates and, and pate and so on and so forth. So um, that's the point at which he has to strike out on his own. And how high is Camp Free? Uh, you are at 23,000 feet. So he's still got so it's, it's, a fair way to go. Yeah, he's got a long way to go. Yeah, he's got a long way to go. But he's, um, he is a, uh, he's got a long way to go, but it's, once you're sitting at the foot of the North Pole, you can really clearly see the route to the, to the top of the mountain. And uh, Rutledge, who was the leader of the 1933 expedition, said that's at the moment when you realise how daunting Everest is. You're looking up and it becomes no longer the fabric of dreams and visions. It becomes this very real challenge of ice and snow and rock. And I think that was at the point where Wilson becomes, for the first time in his adventure, truly frightened about what he has to do. And is it? I mean, so at this point, nobody has ascended Everest. You no. know, we, we, you know, we're still a couple of couple of decades uh, away from that happening, aren't we? Um, is is this in any way viable? Has this man got any chance of of getting to the top with his experience and and knowledge? No, I think it's. I think you know. I think it's. it's I think it's safe to say that even if he had made it, you know, half of the way, which was in itself would have been a huge achievement from, you know, camp three to the top. Uh, you know, there's just no way that you could do it without any technical expertise. It had defeated the best alpinists of his generation, Frank Smythe, George Mallory, that, that uh, those guys knew what they were doing. Uh, Wilson, had absolutely no idea what he was doing. However, when Reinhold Messner in 1980 actually performed the first solo uh, climb of Everest on the same route that Wilson was attempting, he, you know, uh, Messner was in awe of uh, Wilson and, and gets lost in kind of waking daydreams about him when he's about a day's climb from the summit. And he thinks to himself when, when he's sitting in his tent, Messner, at... 28,000 feet. If Wilson had got up here, there's no way he wouldn't have got to the top. He's 
he's more determined than I am and he's capable of enduring greater hardships than I am. So the, th- the thing that really struck Messer about Wilson was his determination and his hardiness. If only he could have allied it to skill, expertise, patience, other characters, that, other characteristics of good mountaineers, he would have been fantastic. But unfortunately, he never applied himself in that way. So lis- listeners can probably guess from, from the way we're talking that it, it doesn't end well for Wilson. Where, where, how far did he get? Do we know? Have we got any idea um, where yeah, he, he ascended he, to? He made, he made two... Uh, he made two attempts to reach the top of the North Coal and Camp 4. And on the second one, at some point uh, at, in the early days of June 1934, he couldn't go on any longer. And uh, he died somewhere within 300 yards of that food dump, probably trying to get back into his tent uh, after um, several exhausting days on that on that sheer face. So he, you know, he gave it two very good goes, uh, but it wasn't enough. And his, his Sherpas, his, uh, the people he paid for, they were, yeah. they were, they were camped there waiting for him to return. That was the idea. That was the idea. They were camped there waiting to return. And this is where it gets difficult to know what happened because they said they were, they, at first they said they waited for a week for him. Uh, uh, but it seems unlikely that they did wait that long. Or else a storm, you know, a storm might have overtaken everyone, uh, in which case it was hard to see. Visibility might have become very bad. But in any event, the Sherpas were told to wait for a while and then to go back down the mountain um, with a letter from Wilson absolving them of blame if they ran into the authorities. And uh, they stayed there for a few days and then they left and they went back down to the Rongbuk Monastery and eventually all three of them went back to Darjeeling where they were arrested and questioned about what had happened. Um, Wilson, meanwhile, his his body was still lying there at the foot of the North Coal and was only found again by the following year's British expedition who came across his body in, uh, in 1935. And, and found uh, some written records with him so that we know yeah. what he did. Yeah, so um, I... One of the sources for this book, uh, one of the many, was the diary that they found on him in his breast pocket when, uh, and it's now, you know, it's now housed in the archives of the Alpine Club in London. And you can read this incredibly interesting, you know, pencil written diary that Wilson took with him uh, with that beautiful final entry on, on May the 31st, 1934, off again, gorgeous day. So it's a, it's a fabulous story um, and one that's not been told uh, very much, really. How hard was it to um, to track down the the sources for this? I mean, you've got some lovely little bits in your in your book where you um, explain what you were doing. So, so how much of a job was it to find out anything about it? It was incredibly hard, actually, um, and took me you know several years of of trying to get to archival material on on three continents. You know, there was uh, I'd searched absolutely everywhere for anything about Wilson. Um, you know, I was pretty convinced at the start of the endeavor that there wasn't a direct living descendant um, who I could find who might help me. Eventually, I actually did find one that's um, one of his brothers married again, which I didn't know, and there was there were descendants from that marriage. And uh, wonderfully, when I called uh, a very elderly man still living in Bradford, he said, "This about Morris then." 
<laughs> and it was like he'd been waiting his entire life for me to call him. And when I got to his house, he just brought out this box of papers with some astonishing things in it, including Wilson's military cross and various other things. But, you know, th- this this whole exercise was about finding 300 tiny things that were going to help you tell the story. Um, you know, I read Wilson's letters that he sent back, which had been passed um, from person to person. And I eventually went to Germany to um, to another historian's house and he had them in his basement. And I, you know, I, you know, I used those letters. They were absolutely wonderful. They give you a real sense of Wilson's voice, but also it was, a, you know, it was, it was a question of looking at every single immigration record that had his name on it, every single ship's manifest, so you knew where he was uh, and where, when he was there. Um, you know, the, his wartime service had been really poorly uh, reported um, in in other histories of Wilson, and I and through using kind of original diaries of his commanding officers in the First World War, I was able to say exactly where he was and when he was there and, and how the battles went that he was involved with. And it was, it was that kind of work that I found really rewarding. It was frustrating and slow going at times, but it was wonderful to be able to kind of put the record straight about Wilson just using these um, incredible original sources. And, and that uh, distant Bradford relative who you mentioned earlier, he, he said something uh, interesting when you uh, met him. He said, there's a secret that I'm going to take to the grave about Morris Wilson, which you do have some observations on in the book. But I think we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that for, uh, for, for, for listeners to, uh, to check that one out. Yeah, I think, I'll, I think we'll just leave that as a little tantalising um, moment in the book. But, I mean, how could you say that to a biographer? <laughs> I've got one secret, but I'll take it to my grave. I mean, I didn't sleep very well the night after he told me that. And then eventually, you know, you sort of work out what it might be. But yeah, he was, he was a, he's a wonderful man. And uh, that, was, that was a really, really just fascinating conversation. So wrapping up, I mean, a brilliant story. And, and like I say, really beautifully told in your book. And, and, and a, a real, you know, story of daring do, the sort of thing that you would have thought, um, uh, uh, you know, boys in the 1950s and 60s would have loved reading about and it fits in that sort of explorer's pantheon but we don't know too much about him i mean he's not a familiar figure he's not a mallory he's not a he's not a ed hillary is he you know i guess in part because he didn't get to the top or at least we don't think he did um but is there something else that sort of prevented him from being more famous was there was the attitude of explorers at the time negative towards him because of his maverick status or something like that yeah i feel like i feel like um Alpinists are quite protective about who who gets into the pantheon, and there was no way that Wilson had uh, any rights in, in most people's view to be considered alongside uh, Mallory or Messner or Ed Hillary. You know, and and I agree with that. He's he wasn't a climber. Um, what I was drawn to with this story, and I think the reason why I thought it deserved to be told, was that he speaks to a more general um, human condition, which is that your life can be upended by trauma or something that affects you profoundly. And you want to redeem it to make sense of it in some way. And that to me is the essence of the Wilson story. Like he was trying to make sense of his life. What he chose to do was, you know, ultimately impossible. But 
there was a the, it's like a piece of performance art. It was like he was expressing himself on this grand stage, um, and he's just he just would not leave me alone, and so I resolved not to leave him alone for a long time. And the result of that obsession is this book. Um, but yeah, he's he's not considered a major figure, and perhaps deservedly so. But you know, minor figures are also incredibly interesting, and I and I find failure ultimately much more interesting than success. That was Ed Caesar, the Moth and the Mountain: A True Story of Love, War, and Everest is out now, published by Penguin. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our Princess in the Tower series. Hey, hey, hey.